Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. When Secret Service agent Paul Landis spotted an intact bullet resting on the ledge of a seat in the back of the presidential limousine on the day of the John F. Kennedy assassination, he reportedly pocketed it to ensure it would not fall into the hands of souvenir hunters or the press that had gathered outside Parkland Hospital. Landis then stayed by the side of Jackie Kennedy into the Dallas hospital where surgeons fruitlessly tried to save her husband's life. Landis says he found himself next to the president's stretcher. People were coming in, he recalls. It was chaos. At that moment, I thought, well, this is the perfect place to leave the bullet. It should be with the president's body. It's an important piece of evidence. Landis claims he tucked the bullet into a blanket by Kennedy's left foot, assuming it would be discovered before the president's autopsy. Haunted by what he had seen that day in Dallas, he all but forgot about the bullet for the next 50 years. Now 88, Landis is finally sharing his recollections of November 22, 1963. In The Final Witness, a Kennedy Secret Service agent breaks his silence after 60 years. He refutes the Warren Commission's single bullet theory, which says that one of the bullets that fired that day entered Kennedy's body from behind, then exited through his throat before striking Texas Governor John Conley in the back, chest, wrist, and thigh. This bullet, per the commission, was later found on John Conley's stretcher, not President Kennedy's. Landis believes this magic bullet, as it is nicknamed by skeptics in recognition of its seemingly improbable trajectory and pristine condition, only struck Kennedy, and that it's the same one he found in the limousine and left on the president's stretcher. The bullet may have rolled onto Conley's stretcher at a later point, leading authorities to link it to the governor's injuries. If this theory is correct, it could indicate that Conley was hit by a different bullet, perhaps even one fired by someone besides Lee Harvey Oswald who would have had to fire three shots consecutively and accurately in just a few seconds. If what Landis says is true, he is likely to reopen the question of a second shooter, if not even more. Landis himself has long agreed with the official explanation that Oswald acted alone. At this point, however, he tells the Times that he's beginning to doubt himself. He says, quote, now I begin to wonder, end quote. On the day of Kennedy's death, Landis was a 28-year-old Secret Service agent assigned to protect the First Lady. He was riding on a running board of the black Cadillac behind the presidential limousine when a shot rang out. According to a November 27, 1963 statement, Landis, quote, heard a second shot and saw the president's head split open, end quote. He said his immediate thought was that the president could not possibly be alive when he was hit like that. At the hospital, Landis stayed right next to Mrs. Kennedy until the president's body was removed in a coffin. Landis remained in Jackie's employment for the next six months, but then decided to leave the Secret Service. He spent the next decades working in real estate, house painting, and manufacturing, rarely discussing what he had witnessed. He said he just wanted to forget the whole awful episode. As Landis tried to forget about the assassination, public interest in and debate over the president's death mounted. The Warren Commission, which was established by Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon B. Johnson, to investigate the assassination, released its finding in September 1964, reporting that Oswald had fired three shots at the president from a sixth-floor window on the Texas School Book Depository. The 888-page report suggested that one of the bullets missed the president, while another struck him before continuing on to wound Connolly. A third bullet hit Kennedy's head, inflicting a fatal injury. The commission also concluded that both Oswald and Jack Ruby, the nightclub owner who murdered Oswald two days after the assassination, acted alone, clearing the Soviet and Cuban governments, the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, and American organized crime syndicates of involvement in a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Initially, the public largely accepted the commission's report, with 87% of Americans polled by Gallup agreeing that Oswald shot the president. 
but criticism of the commission mounted over the next decade or so, peaking in the late 70s with the release of the Zapruder film, a 26-second video capturing a shooting in graphic detail and a congressional report that drew on audio recordings to conclude that a second shooter took aim at the president from the Grassy Knoll area. There were now two conspiracies, the conspiracy to assassinate the president, an even larger and more insidious conspiracy among powerful figures in the government and the media to cover it up. A recent poll shows that 86% of Americans believe that more than one person was involved in Kennedy's death. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Paul Landis of Shaker Heights was a young Secret Service agent just assigned to protect First Lady Jackie Kennedy. In November, he remembers being excited to participate in a motorcade through Dallas. The uh, adrenaline was pumping, uh, and this was uh, my first motorcade. Landis was standing on the running board of the car behind President and Mrs. Kennedy when they turned past the school book depository into Dealey Plaza. Just as we completed our turn and were straightening out, I was heard, bam, I heard... The sound of a high-powered rifle. This photo from the Warren Commission report shows Landis and another agent turning to the right rear from where he says they heard the shot. Very quickly after the second shot, I heard a third shot. With Kennedy mortally wounded, the motorcade raced to Parkland Hospital. That is where Landis says he found this bullet, the infamous pristine bullet, resting on the top of the back seat. And I knew it was an important piece of evidence and needed to be saved. So... I slipped it in my pocket. Amidst the chaos, Landis said in trauma room one, he placed it on the president's exam table. That's with the president's body. They're going to perform an autopsy. They'll have a piece of evidence there. So I took the bullet out of my pocket. I put it next to his shoe. The Warren Commission believed the bullet came from the gurney of wounded Texas Governor John Connolly, concluding the projectile went through the president's neck into Connolly's back, shattering his wrist and coming to rest in his pant leg. Is there any way in your mind that the bullet responsible for the damage to Governor Connolly's wrist could have ended up on the back seat? It's absolutely impossible. 
Landis, now 88, has written a book called The Final Witness. He still believes Lee Harvey Oswald may have been the lone gunman, but thinks the Warren Commission got things terribly wrong. Everybody, I think, made so many mistakes uh, throughout the investigation. I, I made a mistake by, by not speaking up. But was moving the bullet, do you think, 60 years later, was moving the bullet a mistake? No. So what to make of Paul Landis' story? Man, wouldn't it be nice if we had someone that was there that day that could corroborate Paul Landis' story? Well, as a matter of fact, we do. Phyllis Hall was working as a nurse at Parkland Hospital in Dallas on November 22, 1963. She had visited the hospital on this day to visit a friend. While she was at the hospital, the body of President Kennedy arrived with several bullet wounds. Being a nurse employed with the hospital at this time, Hall claims that she was brought into the scrum of nurses to assist in treating the dying president. Ten years ago, while conducting an interview with the Telegraph, Hall claimed that while treating President Kennedy, she saw a near-pristine bullet sitting next to the head of the president on his stretcher. Hall can be quoted as saying in that interview, quote, On the cart, halfway between the earlobe and the shoulder, there was a bullet lying almost perpendicular there, but I have not seen a picture of that bullet ever, end quote. In a separate interview with the Sunday Mirror, Hall corroborated her story saying, quote, I could see a bullet lying there on the president's stretcher. I remember looking at it. There was no blunting of the bullet or scarring around the shell from where it had been fired. These accounts from Nurse Hall have recently been unearthed after former Secret Service agent Paul Landis came forth with bombshell evidence against the magic bullet theory just a few weeks ago. The magic bullet theory is synonymous with the belief that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone to kill President John F. Kennedy in Dallas on that day. In order for Oswald to have achieved this feat alone, one bullet from Oswald would have to have taken a physically impossible path, changing directions and angles in ways that are simply unexplainable. The new claim from Landis that he found the magic bullet behind where President Kennedy was sitting in the limousine bolsters evidence that there was more than one shooter involved that day in Dallas. The magic bullet could not have ended up in Governor Connolly's leg, as the Warren Commission claims, if it was discovered in near pristine condition behind where President Kennedy was sitting in the limo that day. Based on the positioning of Lee Harvey Oswald in the book depository, the bullet discovered behind Kennedy could not have come from Oswald's rifle, if Oswald was even up there at all. The first person they led down that hallway was the mayor of Dallas then, Earl Cabell. The next person that came through was a very frightened Vice President Lyndon Johnson. And then I saw this carriage come in with Governor Conley uh, on it, and he had been gravely wounded. The next carriage I saw, I could just see from the waist down uh, that it was a gentleman on, gentleman on there, and he was in uh, nice slacks. There were no shoes on his feet. and. There was a lady who I would soon know was Jacqueline, was laying across his head and shoulders. She didn't want the people around to see the damage to his head, although from the front, 
it didn't look bad at all. It, the damage was back here. I got into trauma one. I walked over to the carriage and immediately knew that it was President Kennedy. Also, in my estimation, he was dead on arrival. Um, I started trying to feel for vital signs. There, I could feel no pulses. I did not have a stethoscope at that time. So um, his eyelids were about half closed, and his color was what, in medical terms, we call cyanotic, and that means it's a bluish gray. His, his eyelids were about half closed, and his pupils were fixed and dilated. And on the cart, halfway between the earlobe and the shoulder, there was a bullet laying almost perpendicular there. But I have not seen a picture of that bullet ever since that day. Most of my time was spent just plastered against the wall. There were so many doctors in that room at the time. Dr. Kemp Clark, who is head of the neurosurgery department here at Parkland, after he pronounced the president dead, he just turned and walked out of the room, walked right by Mrs. Kennedy, who had been standing at the foot of carriage all the time with her hand on the president's left foot. Early on, the, the supervisor had asked her if she would like a seat out in the hallway, but she declined. And the only thing I heard her say that day was, no, I'm going to stay with him. So she didn't, she didn't move all that time, but after Dr. Clark had pronounced him, he just walked right Mrs. Kennedy without stopping and said, Madam, your husband's dead. So I think the question we should try to answer here is, should we and can we believe Paul Landis' story about what he saw that day and what he did that day at Parkland Hospital? Several questions come to mind. First, why would he wait 60 years to divulge this information? Secondly, why would you lay evidence on a gurney instead of giving it to someone? And thirdly, is Landis just trying to draw attention to himself so he can sell more books? Those questions are for each and every one of you to decide, but I will give you my opinion. First, I do believe Paul Landis' story. It answers so many questions. One of those questions that researchers have been wondering about for years is how the bullet got on the gurney. Some researchers thought the bullet was planted there by Jack Ruby, who was seen at Parkland Hospital that day shortly after the assassination. Then the story of Phyllis Hall came out. In multiple interviews she gave a decade ago, she claimed she had seen a bullet on Kennedy's stretcher lying next to his head, which adds to the possibility that Landis is telling the truth. Nurse Hall came out with her claims 10 years ago, way before the Paul Landis claim. And as far as the question of why you were leaving on the gurney next to the president's body, my answer would be why not? Where else would you leave it? It was a piece of evidence it needed to be by the president's body. What we got to realize was it was mass chaos that day at Parkland Hospital. And Paul Landis was a 28-year-old Secret Service agent, a fairly new agent at that. And he had just witnessed one of the most horrific incidents in American history. So to say he might not have been thinking clearly would be an understatement. And if you're asking yourself why he would remain silent for 60 years, it has been well documented that after the assassination, Paul Landis just wanted to forget about the whole thing and try to put it out of his mind. 
After all, if the Warren Commission was so interested in what he had to say, why didn't they interview him? They didn't. Paul Landis probably also saw that all the witnesses that had come forward over the years that didn't go along with the Warren Commission's theory were ridiculed in the national media. Some had their careers destroyed and even their lives. Do you remember Ralph Leon Yates? I don't question why anyone didn't come forward back in the day. I could sit and talk for hours about witnesses that were mysteriously tied to the assassination that came up dead. Maybe Landis didn't want to be another statistic, and who could blame him? Even in the last few weeks after this story broke, a lot of the national media has ridiculed him. I will say this, a lot of mistakes were made that day in Dallas immediately after the assassination, and maybe Landis' placement of the bullet on the gurney was one of them. Maybe he should have left the bullet in the limo, but then it would have never been found. Let's keep in mind the Secret Service had whisked a vital element of the crime scene investigation, which was Kennedy's limousine, out of park and unloaded it into a C-130 military plane. They flew it back to Andrews Air Force Base, and then the limo was taken directly to the White House garage, remaining off-limits even to the FBI until well after midnight. Why is that? The Secret Service, under the direct command of the new President Lyndon Johnson, illegally removed JFK's body from Parkland as well. Prevailing law demanded that the autopsy be performed in Texas, scene of the homicide, but it was instead conducted in Bethesda by military personnel, likewise all subject to Johnson's immediate authority. Having little to no experience in autopsies involving gunshots, the Navy and Army doctors never dissected the wounds in Kennedy's back and throat to determine bullet paths or trajectories, according to procedure. Thus, they never proved the two wounds were even connected inside JFK's body. They did, however, probe the back wound. One of the doctors testified that a pinky finger wouldn't even go in past the tip. Thus explains where this bullet that Landis found came from. It had to have been a shot that entered the president's back but didn't travel very far, and then fell out of his back in the limousine. And then Landis finds it at the hospital, exactly where JFK was sitting in the limo. Makes way more sense than the magic bullet theory. But I will tell you one of the main reasons I believe Landis' story. In October of 2022, I had the pleasure of interviewing a very well-known ex-Secret Service agent, whose name I will not mention, but it's not hard to figure out. One of the things that this ex-agent told me is that one of his colleagues had a secret, but he had encouraged him to take it to his grave. My guess is that agent was Paul Landis, and he decided to not take it to his grave. Another aspect of this story caught my attention and is equally important. In the accounts I have read, the media seems to be using the story to imply that the single bullet theory is true if Landis' allegation is false, which is an outright lie. As anyone who has studied the facts with an open mind knows, sufficient evidence proves the same bullet did not hit Kennedy and Connolly. Even Governor Connolly thought that when he was alive. So Landis' disclosure may do more harm than good when the dust clears. As an example, the New York Times story by Peter Baker says this, quote, The Warren Commission decided that one of the bullets fired that day struck the president from behind, exited from the front of his throat, and continued on to hit Mr. Conley, somehow managing to injure his back, chest, wrist, and thigh. It seemed incredible that a single bullet could do all that, so skeptics called it the magic bullet theory, end quote. What does Baker mean that the Warren Commission, quote, decided that one bullet was responsible for so many wounds? Wasn't their conclusion based on evidence? Did they flip a coin? Baker also wrote that somehow one bullet hit Kennedy and Conley, but gave no details of the severity of the injuries. Had he taken the time to check the archives of the newspapers he works for, 
he would have learned that on November 24, 1963, the New York Times wrote, quote, Physicians said that the bullet had traveled through the governor's body and had broken his fifth rib. It then struck his right wrist, causing a compound fracture and lodged in his left thigh. A fragment from the rib punctured his lung, end quote. Baker did what all the media reporters have done for 60 years. He glossed over the facts, in this case the severity of the wounds, as if it was no big deal. But it was a big deal. Any reasonable person would not accept the fact that one bullet could do all that damage and remain intact. Baker was not alone in writing deceptively. Vanity Fair's article headline reads, quote, A new JFK assassination revelation could upend the long-held, long-gunman theory, end quote. In other words, in their opinion, if Landis' story is untrue, then Oswald was the lone gunman. The article dismisses those who disagrees with the Warren Commission's findings as, quote, JFK conspiracy hounds, end quote. The point is there is convincing evidence that there were at least two gunmen without Landis' story. Even Gerald Ford, who served on the Warren Commission and defended it until the day he died, knew the single bullet theory was a scam. On October 2, 1964, he wrote an article for Life magazine. He says, quote, It is still not absolutely clear which bullet hit the governor. Though the governor believes it was another bullet, the second shot fired by Oswald, the commission concluded that it probably was the same one that had passed through the president's throat, end quote. Ford knew it had to be the same bullet that hit both men for the single bullet theory to be true. By writing it, quote, probably was the same bullet means he didn't believe it either. The time has come for the media to report the facts surrounding the JFK assassination accurately. Those of us in the research community are, quote, not JFK conspiracy hounds, as Vandy Fair article labeled us. We are serious researchers trying to ride a terrible miscarriage of justice. The media must take the Kennedy assassination seriously if they genuinely want to uncover the truth. A good starting point would be to interview researchers who can lay out the facts proving the single bullet theory is a fabrication. Reporters acting like they are interested in what Landis has to say when they are just wanting for the opportunity to discredit him is not fooling anyone. And then people question why Landis did not come out sooner. Anyone that doesn't go along with the so-called narrative is labeled a conspiracy nut. So will these new revelations by Paul Landis change anything? Probably not. It seems the cover-up continues even 60 years later. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK Assassination, after taking a two-week break to dive into the Paul Landis story, we will now head back into the medical evidence. We will begin to talk about the President's autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital. How could what the doctors saw at Bethesda differ so greatly from what the doctors saw at Parkland? We'll see you next week.